Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. The show was, of course, Commodity Watch Radio, hosted in association with Mindsight, but we've changed the name. Now it's a cloudy winter's Sunday afternoon here in London, and I'm sitting in the Radisson Hotel in the centre of town with Robert Prechter. He's just got off a plane that was delayed by three hours due to paranoia, it seems, but uh, he's here with us now. And, and for those of you that don't know Robert, he's the author of some 13 books on socionomics and market behaviour. Many listeners will have read The Compelling Conquer the Crash. Um, he graduated from Yale University in 1971 with a de- degree in psychology and has been publishing the newsletter The Elliott Wave Theorist the Elliott Wave Theorist since 1979, and he's the president of Elliott Wave International. And he believes that social and economic trends can be predicted using wave principle. He's famous for his many excellent market calls. Um, recently, he advised clients to go short in 2007 and to cover in late February 2009. In early 2010, he was telling them to go short again, to go 200% short. And since then, we've had quite a correction. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've something of a, of a reputation as a bit of an uber bear. I mean, what's, what's your outlook at the moment? Is it, is it negative? Well, just to put that in perspective, back in the 70s, uh, late 70s and early 80s, uh, people thought I was a super bull, and I was. Uh, But we have, in my view, ended not only a bull market from 1982 or 1974, which I think might be a standard view, but also a longer progression of waves from 1932 and perhaps even longer than that. So I think the type of top that has been building since 1998 uh, through 2007 is of such large degree that you really have to go back to something like the South Sea bubble in England to look at uh, the kind of juncture that I think uh, we have passed and also the kind of outcome that I think eventually uh, will resolve itself over the next few years. So, I mean, when I look at a long-term chart of the Dow, I mean, it's the mother of all double tots, isn't it? Oh, it's tremendous. In fact, the recent high, January 2010 looks very much like a right shoulder, if you're a standard chartist, uh, to the tops of 2007. So I think we're set up from so many different points of view, overvaluation, technical readings, uh, waves of optimism and pessimism, um, and just plain market sentiment that I don't feel in the least bit concerned about giving the kind of advice I've been giving, which is go to maximum safety and you can't get hurt following that advice back in 1982 when i was very bullish and said you should be buying stocks i was a little bit nervous because i was asking people to take some risk Mm -hmm. but in this point it's the opposite you want to be completely as risk-free as possible 
so that when the next great buying opportunity does show up, you've got the cash to take advantage of. Okay, I want to ask you what you see as as risk-free, but before we go into that, I'd like to, I mean, what's your time scale and what are your kind of long-term targets? If we use the S&P as a kind of, uh, as as our benchmark. Well, time has eluded me in the last uh, 10 years because the bull market went on a lot longer than I thought it would. Then the top building process went a lot longer than I thought it would. Of course, once you see it building, you say, okay, I understand where we are, and you get reorient yourself. So when I give out a time suggestion, it really is just that, a suggestion at best. Uh, right now, I think a lot of time counts and cycles that I'm looking at point to around 2014 for a low, um, but that could come more swiftly if the market goes down as swiftly as it did, say, in 1930 to 1932. Uh, Or it could take more time because of so many credit engines that we have around uh, could help delay that to maybe 2016. But that gives you kind of a window of of time. I'm not talking about 20 years, and I'm not talking about three months and a double bottom. And if you were to look at, uh, say, 2010, 2010, I mean, what are your kind of targets for this year, if you have any? Um... (laughs) I believe that we are starting, and I'm leaving that open as to whether the market might make another new high. I don't think it will, but it might. Uh, I think we've started, or we're starting, the third wave down. And in the Elliott Wave model, that's the strongest wave in the sequence. So what we saw in 2008 was just sort of a preview of what I think we'll see in 2010-2011. should be a very strong decline. Uh, across the board, I think worldwide as well. Downside targets are a little bit elusive because I think we're in the middle, uh, or we will be in the middle of a wave all during the year. So if the ultimate bottom is a few years away, um, I think you're talking about a market that could go from five digits in the Dow down to triple. In other words, back under 1,000. And of course, that's very radical and, and seems crazy. But I think Looking back, if someone in 1982 had said, look, the Dow's at 770, uh, where do you think it'll go in the next few years? And someone said 14,000, they'd say he was crazy. In fact, when we were saying 4,000, people thought that was outrageous. So I think we're set up now for a complete retracement of what um, I think in retrospect people are calling a bubble. Back in 1983, what I was predicting was a mania, similar word. And historically, those are fully retraced. And that's what the wave count calls for as well. So Would you I'm just calmly waiting. We don't have to get yeah. there, but we have to be safe until we see where we're going. Would your wave count be the, the highs of 2008 down to the uh, lows of March 2009? Was that wave one or wave A, if you like? Yes. The bounce that no we matter just how, seen? Yes. No matter how you count the peak in 2007, I count it as the B wave of an... Expanded flat correction, but it's equally valid to call it the final fifth wave if you count from 1974. Either way, we're starting a five wave move to the downside. We've had waves one and two. So the March lows are going to be retested, but to, to call for, for triple digits on the Dow, um, is, is it possible to reach a number like that under the monetary system? with which we operate. Does that make sense to you? In, in yeah. a fiat-based currency. I mean, I, I can see the kind of old lows being retested if you measure it in gold. But with, a, with all the monetary stimulus and the monetary printing and everything else that's gone on, is it possible to reach those lows? That's what most people uh, say 
to me when I give them the opinion. They say it's not possible because we'll simply, uh, the authorities will simply inflate. But what the authorities inflate with is credit. There's been very little money creation relative to the amount of credit outstanding. And the credit buildup in the decade of the 2000s was unprecedented. Um, banks and other institutions were lending to people who were literally broke and could not afford the loans. I think we have 40 to $50 trillion worth of loans that won't be paid ultimately. That money's going to disappear. People right now might say, I have a million dollars worth of IOUs, so I have a million dollars worth of value. And if those IOUs uh, go up in smoke, as I think they will, that value goes away. And that is the essence of deflation, and that's the subtitle of my book. And, and I'll add, I don't think you'll find a more contrary opinion. If you're looking for a contrary opinion as a way to have the majority fooled, which is what the market usually does, um, for example, everyone hated gold at 250, they love it at 1250. Um, very few people on the planet think that deflation is, is likely. You've got the bulls who say we're fine, it's a normal cycle, and you've got the bears who say hyperinflation is coming. The problem with all those inf inflation-deflation arguments is, is definition. People mean different things by it. And Sadly. I, you I, think by now they'd have it, a well, definition nailed down. Ex ex exactly. And so I, I'm wary about getting into those conversations without kind of agreeing a definition first. But just harping back to your – for a moment before we get into that, your call about um, triple digits on the Dow, I would suggest that the monetary system will implode before we get there. I think it's, it's begun imploding. That was uh, the theme of Conquer the Crash, and it was before any of this began to happen. In fact, we had three more years in the U.S. of extreme credit uh, availability right up into the peak of the real estate market in 2005. Um, that was pretty much the end of it, though, 2005 to 2007. And now we're in a retrenchment period where credit is beginning to go the other way. Instead of expanding, it's contracting. Instead of people wanting to borrow, they want to pay off their loans. Instead of people wanting to lend, they'd rather have the money. And this is a psychological change. It's a social psychological change in mood and attitude. It's not going to go away. It's only going to get stronger, I think, uh, over this period. And that is the ultimate cause of changes in the, in the uh, total amount of money and credit, particularly credit, um, in the system. And as credit implodes, as you say, that's going to essentially ruin or, or greatly disrupt the monetary system that we have, which is based on debt. Absolutely. Now, um, yes, so... Can I quote you on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You certainly can. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I there's don't... two of us saying the same thing. Then. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I always agree with my guests. I find yeah, you get exactly. more out of them if you agree with them. And but when <laughs> Mark Fobber's on next week, you'll agree with him that well, we're going I mean, into hyperinflation. Uh, uh, listen, <laughs> the, my problem is, is when, I, when I hear an inflationist argue, I'm utterly persuaded by the arguments. And when I hear a deflationist argue, I'm utterly persuaded by the, the arguments. I'm easily swayed. Uh, but my kind of overall view, really, is that we're going to see both. And we are seeing both. We're seeing if the definition of an inflation is an increase in the supply of money and credit, then we are seeing the, a growth in the supply of money because of quantitative easing and various other, other government, government policies. But we are seeing a decline in the amount of credit because of, of individual deleveraging, if you like. Correct. It's exactly right. And my argument is there is far more credit than there is base money. 50 to 500 times, depending on whether you count promises such as Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, and all the derivatives out there. 
but just the uh, obvious, you know, IOUs uh, that people can see, the bonds, bills, and notes, they're 50 to $70 trillion worth. And uh, in the U.S., we have a $2 trillion uh, money base. So that's a very big difference. There's far more credit, and I think that implosion of credit is what is going to accompany this big decline. Let's talk about um, what you consider to be safe assets, what you should be owning in this environment. There are very few in the world. Uh, The monetary system globally has gotten in such sorry shape with so much bad debt out there. But there are very few things that I believe are safe to buy. I would not want to buy long-term bonds. I don't uh, recommend buying, say, in the U.S., state or municipal bonds. The stock market is terrifically overvalued. Real estate remains terrifically overvalued. There's an overhang of real estate, and the banks lent to the last possible person back in 2005, 2007. I don't think there's anyone left to lend to. So that narrows it down, and, and we're in a situation where uh, gold would normally be attractive in a deflationary environment if it were the money we were using. Unfortunately, what most people owe are dollars and pounds and uh, euros and yen. So that is what the scramble will be for. And I think this is why the dollar turned in November, because finally we have returned to a credit implosion situation. People are starting to worry, so they're rushing to buy uh, the dollars that will survive. So what's safe? Nothing is purely safe, but the safest items are plain cash. I mean, you know, like the kind you carry around in your wallet. Yeah. And you can store those in vaults. Uh, the closest thing to cash is a direct full faith and credit of the government short-term bill. In the U.S., that would be a treasury bill. In Switzerland, it's a Swiss money market claim. Um, and then I've always said it's a good idea to have some precious metals Uh, even during this environment. And I said that in Conquer the Crash back when gold was in the 300s. I think it's way overpriced now, and it's giving technical uh, sell signals. So I'm not interested in adding here, but we're going to be looking very carefully to move to that investment later as the deflation ends. If if everything goes my way, we'll be moving from cash to to gold, rather. Um, I have some people who've you know earned a bit of money and they've got some savings and and they come to me for advice and i've advised cash and gold good and and i i don't think that's bad advice even though you know gold was looking very frothy at 1200 and that there are some technical arguments that that point to a higher gold price by the summer if if it continues to repeat it's a pattern it's made over the uh, previous few years, which is to make an up move of six to nine months, then consolidate for eighteen months, and then make another up, other up move. And, and I think we're half. We it could be that we're halfway through such an up move, in which case we'll see higher prices in the spring. But in an environment of capitulating stock markets, which we seem to be heading into, then I think gold will fall with the stock markets at least at first, and then at a certain point it's going to decouple. Um, I, I think you have to own some gold because. If we do go to those kind of numbers that you're talking about, or, or even 3,000 on the Dow, there's just going to be so much pressure on currencies, particularly for us here in the UK, who, who have, you know, with sterling, we don't have the, the senior um, reserve currency of the world in US dollars. But I just think you have to own some gold. And if it goes down, you just have to accept that it's, it goes down and it has the potential to rise at, at some stage. Yes, I agree as long as the word sum is in there. To, uh, I think many, many people are saying this is the only thing you should own now. Uh, And I think that's very dangerous because 
what's actually happen, happening is the coupling is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. The stock market topped out in October 2007 in the U.S., and the dollar uh, was, had not yet bottomed. It finally bottomed in March 08 as the metals made a top. That's when silver made its top that it has not exceeded yet. And then it tested the low in July, early July, and that's when gold, uh, oil made its top. Mm-hmm. So it was spreading out over uh, quite a period of about nine months. Now the dollar just bottomed, I think, in um, November uh, and then tested the low just a, a few weeks later in early December, and gold and silver appear to have topped at that time. It did a wave one up and a wave two down, and that's when the stock market finally registered a high. So if you look at how tight that is between November and January, I think gold and the stock market are more coupled than ever right now because the the big force is this deflationary force. We're heading into a third wave down. That means it's going to overwhelm everything. So I think people will be selling everything they can get their hands on to get whatever money they need to either pay their debts if they're on the debtor side or to collect those debts if they're on the creditor side. Mm-hmm. What do you think of foreign currencies? And by foreign currencies, I mean not the U.S. dollar. Sterling, uh, the euro. I mean, the euro could easily capitulate here in, in this environment. Oh, I'm uh, extremely bullish on the dollar. In fact, I did a media tour in November and December, uh, and even as far back as uh, August, I was saying we're coming into a major, major bottom in the dollar. The um, daily sentiment index was down at 3% bulls, which is very, very low, in the dollar index for several times during the fall. It was a terrific setup. People were going around making speeches about hyperinflation. Um, meanwhile, silver refused to, to um, confirm every single high that gold was making in 2009. So you had a perfect setup for a major turn in the dollar, and I think we got it. Uh, and I think it's going to go far higher than most people believe. The bets against the dollar seem to be across the board from all kinds of uh, commentators, advisors, and so on. And I think those people will end up covering before this rally is over. Do you like sterling? Not particularly, because um, I think the dollar is the currency in which the bulk of the world's debts are denominated. It's a bigger ocean of IOUs than we have in sterling or in euro or in yen. So that is the currency that has the greatest capacity f- for deflation, and that's why it's going up. It's not going up because of good news. It's, it's been going up because of bad news. So I think relative to the dollar, virtually every other, every other currency will be heading lower. Um, what about the commodity currencies, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar? Um, I pretty much feel the same way about them. Uh, their economies are not as debt-laden as the U.S. economy or Europe uh, for the most part. So they have less deflation to go, and that means their currencies should not be as strong as the currencies that are going to be imploding, oddly enough, uh, at least the, the major currencies that are going to be imploding. So they've, they've had terrific runs. I mean, it was a great time uh, to be in those currencies for the last year, but uh, that, that game is over. I think the trend has changed. We'll see what happens. So it's basically, I mean, there is a definite trend that's been in place. It's the U.S. dollar and everything else. Exactly. And at the moment, you're saying, forget everything else, go right. for the U.S. Now, dollar. Now, this is very interesting because you had mentioned the, the coupling before. Uh, when the stock market bottomed in March, March 6th uh, and, and 9th of, of 2009, that is when the dollar started getting weak. 
So you had a, a perfect counter-trend move, and, and at the time we said, look, we've just made a beautiful bottom. It's a terrific five waves down in Elliott terms. We got as low as 2% bulls on the daily sentiment index. Uh, S&P had never been that low ever. That means 98% of traders thought the market would go down instead of up. So that was a terrific juncture. So what can you forecast as a socionomist when you see that? We're going to have more optimism for, for a while, a number of months. And we felt that a normal retracement would take the Dow back to 10,000. We were saying that back in March. So what goes along with uh, increased optimism? For one thing, spreads come in on bonds. So you have uh, the junk bonds uh, rates coming closer to the uh, safer or perceived safer bonds. Uh, and people generally feeling better. You get the economy improving near the end of one of those trends. We've already had two big up quarters in the economy, at least statistically in the United States. And so we've had all of the things happen that we expected to happen. And during that time, the dollar was weak. Now I think we are beginning a new trend that should last a year and a half, two years at least, of increasing pessimism. So you're going to get the opposite. You're going to get spreads widening again. You get stocks uh, falling in price. Uh, and you're going to have another contraction in the economy worldwide. Um, two questions for you. Let's start with gold. Um, I've heard people say that you've said, I've never heard you say this, but I've heard people say that you've said you've got a target of $200 for gold. Is that correct? I think there's a, uh, I think gold is going to go down a lot more than people suspect. Uh, it's the only market that everyone loved in 2009, the only one. And it's the only one that went to a new all-time high. All the other commodities lagged, and even its partner, Silver, couldn't get above the 2008 high. Uh, so that is where the focus was. Any market that's got an over, overly strong focus, such as tech stocks in March of 2000, uh, and you saw what happened to the NASDAQ after that relative to the Dow and the other indexes. The focus here is on gold. I think that makes it extremely vulnerable. It went up for 10 whole years. And there was a great article in Barron's in February 2001 uh, about gold, and every single person, whether he was a trader or an industry person or a commentator, was negative on the price. And they said, we see absolutely no reasons for gold to go up. At least two people were quoted as saying that. Today, there are commercials for gold on late-night television. There are vending machines where you can buy it, and everyone loves the, the market. This is not a good time to be invested and when it becomes time, we'll see all the indicators change again. People will think gold can't go up anymore and will be bullish. What happened in 2008 when we had mass deleveraging? What happened in the gold market was a... There was a divergence. There was mass selling in the paper gold markets in the futures of gold stocks and so on. But there was so much stress in the banking system and there was so much panic that a lot of individuals were going to bullion dealers and, and, you know, buying bars of gold and buying Krugerrands and buying sovereigns and all the rest of it. So there was this contradiction. And uh, the gold dealers who I talked to here in the UK reported unprecedented levels of business. That, that's an, there's an essential contradiction there because there was a rush to the real safety that is gold, but in the, in the kind of paper derivatives, there was a rush away from it because the derivative market is, is, is credit-based. If we get, I mean, I see gold as a hedge against stress in the banking system. Uh, that's when gold seems to do best. If people say gold is a hedge against inflation. It isn't. The 80s and 90s were a period essentially of, of inflation, of asset, of credit, of everything else, and gold went down for 20 years. So it's, it's a hedge against stress in the banking system. So if we see 
your scenario of deleveraging pan out over the next two to five years, it's possible that we'll see that contradiction where people are buying physical gold, but we still have the selling in the paper markets. Um, I don't agree with that. First of all, uh, 2008, gold did go down. It went down from March to October and uh, lost about 30% of its value. Oh, absolutely. Value. And it, but, silver but, but, but went but from 21 people, to 8. Absolutely. I'm not talking about silver because silver's, you know, silver is, okay. is an irrational well, metal. Okay, I'm but people only gold. talk about gold now because it's the one market at a new high. So, of course, everything else doesn't matter, yeah. but it does matter. Okay, but, but and I agree that you can silver kind of informs you about gold. Platinum. Well, platinum is different because it's an industrial metal. It's not a monetary metal. I think metal. silver is too. Uh, okay, <laughs> but that's, that's a discussion for another day. But, but the, the point I'm making about gold is that people were buying in the physical market, but they were selling in the paper market. And the, well, they were actually selling because the price went down during the worst portion of the uh, deleveraging and the deflationary uh, run in 2008. Gold went down. Now, as, as the system began to reflate, gold had another leg up. It's been basically going up and down with the stock market. It went up throughout the entire time that stocks went up uh, from 2002 to 2007. Gold was going up, and it was having a heyday. And the only time it really had a, a strong hiccup on the downside was that deflationary period in 08. And now, look what's happened. Just days after the U.S. dollar bottom, gold seems to have topped uh, at 12.27. That was just a few days from the dollar's bottom. Now, I would say fundamentally I disagree that uh, gold is a hedge against difficult times or banking stresses. It's, it's over a long run, it's a good reflection of inflation. But most deflationists want to have it uh, both ways. They want to say gold can go up during inflation, and with deflation it's a hedge, so you want to own it. I don't think that argument works. If you believe one side of it, you have to say the other side uh, is, is the contrary side, and gold should go down during inflation. I believe I'm being consistent in saying that's likely to happen. Um, I did a study of the gold prices going way back about uh, six decades and found that most of the time when gold went up, the economy was expanding. And most of the time it was going down, we were in recessionary times or depressionary times. So if you look at 2008 when gold went down, we were in a recessionary period. In 2009, we recovered and gold zoomed to a new high while we were recovering in the economy and the stock market was recovering. So this coupling is extremely tight. The only difference, the only thing that made gold a little bit different in 2008 is it went down much less than the other commodities did and the, and the stock markets did. But I think that was to set up to, for this new high. Gold had gone up less than everything else. I think platinum went up something like seven times, you know, and, and oil went up, I don't know, yeah. 14 times. And, and gold had, was up about four times. Well, now it's made it to a, to a five times multiple. So it's simply in the range of the other commodities right now. It played a little bit of catch-up. It was not a big special situation. It just, gold is more conservative. So it didn't have the big run that time. And now that people are getting more conservative, they're looking for the one thing they can buy. It's just like in the stock market when the final high, like January 1973, is blue chips. People are saying, I'll be conservative. I'll buy the blue chips here. They'll never go down. And people are shunning the other commodity. Well, they're not shunning them. They're buying them. They're not pushing them to new highs. But they're focusing on gold. That's our blue chip. It's the one thing left that we have to hang on to. People who are buying things to get out of this deflationary crash are going to get caught. In 1970, all you had to do was buy things. And everyone said, buy gold, buy silver, buy copper, whatever you want to buy. This cycle is the opposite. You want to be out of all of this stuff and into cash so that when they hit their bottoms, you can buy gobs more of whatever commodity you're in love with, and believe me, people will not be in love with them when they're at the bottom, uh, for much lower prices. 
I, I gather you're a, a, a libertarian, Robert. You believe in, 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 the, in the efficiency of the free market and, the, and that governments can get in the way. And gold, I mean, you don't particularly like gold as an investment, but surely gold is the currency of, of the free market. Gold is the only real money. And this is why the politicians work so hard to get rid of it, because they can't manipulate real money. So I think England was the country that invented central banking, isn't that, in the late 1600s, something like that? I believe that. so, yeah. So instead of using actual money, which is gold, uh, to serve as uh, the unit of monetary exchange, um, some brilliant people in, got this idea that we could use government debt and that people would have shares in the debt, and that would be the value that they would, would hold William, their money in. William, William of Orange uh, was mm. our king who started all of that. I see. Well, that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, but we're, we're living in a world that where we're having the worst of both sides of the government mismanagement of the monetary system. Ever since 1933, we've had relentless inflation, which has destroyed savings, Hurt, uh, el- hurt the elderly because whatever they uh, held on to in terms of money has, has evaporated away. And now we're on the other side, the deflationary side, which is even more destructive. If you had left gold as the unit of money, all of this would have been much more dampened and an individual, enlightened individual would be able to choose a safe bank. But we, we don't have any safe banks anymore because they're all dealing in this, in this phony money. So it's an extremely bad situation, and I think the Austrians are really missing out on something, the neo-Austrians, because uh, they are saying that deflation is impossible when really it's just yet another government disaster that we're going to have to live through. Okay. I mean, if, if we do get another cycle of deleveraging and a, and a major deflationary bust, I still think the, the monetary system will implode and we'll go back to some kind of gold standard before we hit 300 on the Dow. I'm a big fan of gold money. Yes. Have you interviewed yes. Jim Turk before? Many times. Uh, right. I'm a big fan and I have an account with That's him. the future, yeah. where you actually put your money in a bank and it stays there. They mm. don't lend it out to people who want to buy a house for 2% down. It actually stays there, and, and that will be a very solid monetary system as long as governments allow it to flourish. Uh, whether we go all the way uh, worldwide that way is probably not going to happen, but if you have the option, that's what's important. Already, I've, I've sent a couple of people gold money's way, and already the administrative burden of opening an account with them is becoming onerous oh, because awful. of the regulation that's being imposed. Exactly. The, the freedom is completely lost. You have to fill out so many forms and give so many documents. I think it's even fingerprints or something else, all because the government wants them to do that because of the money laundering rules. <clears throat> but it's, it's a sad state of affairs, and I think we're going to have polarization in this bear market, so you're going to get more and more authoritarianism at the same time that you get more and more people who are saying, we don't want this anymore, we want freedom instead, you know, a radical concept. <laughs> it is a radical concept. Can you measure, can you use your wave principle to measure... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's like a measurement of government control, a measurement of freedom. Can you, you, you know, you kind of <clears throat> go in waves where there's more government control and then waves when there's le- more libertarianism. Well, Is there a way of measuring yes, that? Yes, I did a study, and I think that central banks tend to be created in fourth, major fourth waves so that they can be there for the fifth wave uh, speculative binge, uh, and then they tend to go away. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance that the, uh, the, the Fed may be completely uh, dissolved and gotten rid of. 
At least it's one of the possibilities. But the the ebb and flow of optimism and pessimism does not necessarily lead to more uh, freedom or more authoritarianism. What happens in the uptrends is that you get more middle-of-the-road politics. You don't have the extremes. In a bear market period, you get the extremes. You get the extreme authoritarianism, and then you get the reaction to that. People want freedom. Usually, sadly, authoritarianism wins. In 1933, uh, Hitler took over in Germany. Uh, Stalin consolidated power and was was a, a disaster there. In 1949, of course, uh, Mao took over China. Uh, but in rare instances, such as in the colonies in uh, the late 1700s, you actually uh, have the freedom side win, and, uh, and, and, and a country can start over from that base, just as, say, Rome did when it was founded. So um, polarization is what you're going to see, extreme polarization. It'll be quite a struggle. May the, may the good side win. Yes. <laughs> may the good side win, exactly. Okay, let's talk about China. What's your opinion on China? I know it's a big subject, but, I mean, is this... Is this yes, is I think I can uh, sum that pretty quickly. Uh, my friend James Dines, do you know that name? I do. I've interviewed him on this show. Called... Uh, it was bullish on China, turned bullish on China in, I think, 1979, before anybody even thought about it. They'd mm. just gone through the Cultural Revolution. They were a mess. They were a disaster. And he said, China's going to come out and be a, a world leader. Now, to me, that's a forward-looking person. And the people who, who waited 25 years to say, oh, we like China, to me, were so far behind the curve, it's not even funny. So what we really had in the past 10 years is the peaking of this first giant wave up in China's long-term fortunes. To me, China is very much like the United States emerging from the late 1700s. You know, revolutionary type of environment, very difficult fighting. Um, but once they go through this major retrenchment, which I think is already in force, they're trying to fight it with li- liquidity like everyone else, but it's that's going to fail. They'll go through their extremely difficult time, very much as the U.S. did in the Civil War period. But once they get their act together again, I think they will be the world leader. But by then, everybody's going to be too preoccupied to go and invest in China, like they want to do now, near the, near the top. Let's just talk about Elliott Waves now, and Wave Principle. Uh, Michael Hampton, who's a regular guest on this show, describes Elliott Waves as more of an art rather than a science. How do you read the waves, and how often do they not work? Well, the first thing I'd say is... Not every system works all the time, does it? Well, wave principle is not a system. Wave principle is a description of the shapes of market price changes. Now, let's suppose uh, you met a man who had lived on the dark side of the moon his whole life and never seen a tree. And he said, well, tell me, what does it look like? Now, you'd have to sit down and explain a lot about the tree. And and as you spoke, he might misunderstand a lot of what you said. Well, are these things perfectly straight, these things you call branches? Well, no, they kind of twist and turn. Well, you know, they look like uh, a tube or what? Well, not really. They're kind of rough. So Eliot went in empirically in the 30s and described what he saw in great detail. So it's a description of how uh, the market moves. Now, from that... Uh, description, you can make a lot of conclusions about how the market should behave. It's going to move in five waves when going in the direction of the one larger trend. It's going to move in three waves or a combination thereof when going against the one larger trend. But it doesn't tell you necessarily the quantity. Some branches are longer than others. Some waves are longer than others. There's a lot of quantitative variability. 
Um, however, I don't think there's a better template from which to work. So once you have the wave model to work from, then you can interpret your indicators, sentiment, momentum indicators, and so on, in the correct light, understanding the gr degree of the trend. So, for example, that's why I took this risk and wrote this book calling for a major decline. In fact, our 1978 book called for a major bull market for the same reason. We saw that the degree was very, very large. We'd finished a, a tremendous bear market period from 1966 to 74 82, and it was the base for a giant move up. Well, now we've completed a fifth wave just as we did in 1929. So we're looking for the aftermath there. Other times, such as in uh, late February, early March of 2009, we said, well, this is a bottom, but it's not cycle degree or super cycle degree. It's what we call primary degree. So that's how we were able to say the Dow should go back to 10,000. Um, it went a little further than that, but it's certainly within the range of a primary degree retracement. But calling for 10,000 on the Dow when it was at 7,000 in, in February was an absurd call. Yeah, it was crazy. And the wave principle is the only thing that allows you to do that from time to time. So you can look back over its 70-year published history of, I think, seven different practitioners who were leading uh, during their days and find an amazing track record, but you'll find, obviously, plenty of times when people are wrong. It's, it's like saying, well, someone who bats in baseball, uh, maybe that's, this is the wrong place to be talking about baseball, but... Uh, it's fine. We've heard Batting of it. three or four hundred, he still is out more than he's in, but he's still the best player around. What I would like people to do is not impose a double standard and just simply say, is it a better track record than The Economists have produced? Oh, yeah, a lot better. Is it a better track record than Fundamental Analysts have produced? Of course it is. And I think it's a better track record than any other even technical method that has any kind of track record uh, is out there. So I don't think you can do better. Do, do you trade the markets yourself? Upon occasion. I'm mostly I'm too busy. I mean, mm. I've got 100 employees. Uh, we've got 25 analysts working around the clock covering every major market worldwide. I'm overseeing that kind of thing. I'm going around, you know, making these mm. speeches yeah. and so on. So mostly I'm, I'm a position person. I get into position based on what I think is likely to happen. And, for example, I'm very... Uh, liquid right now in all the safest possible dollar no investments silver. I can. Uh, actually, I still have the silver that I bought in 1993 at $3.50 right at the low. I bought two bags of what are called junk silver oh, coins yeah. uh, just in case we, we have a freeze-up situation in the banking system and we may need to spend them. You, you can buy uh, some but that was a great buy. I, I was very, I, that was one of the thrills of my life. And, uh, you know, you should have some gold coins as well, but I think the chance of buying those will be, be greater somewhere down the road. Um, I'm going to have a bet with you about gold, but uh, let me just ask you, what about, uh, you talked about Jim Dines. Do you like uranium or rare earth, or do they just fit into your, you don't want to earn anything? No, no, you cash? should have liked uranium. Uh, it had a, one of the biggest runs of any commodity ever, but that's over. All of those commodity runs are, are over with. I even think the rebounds are probably over. Uh, my upside target on oil when it was 33.50 was... Uh, low 70s. It actually got to the low 80s, but I still think it's a counter-trend move. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to think of a good bet. Do you, do you want to have a sportsman's bet? No, I'll, bet I'll tell you why, because I'm on record with everything I say, Yeah. so I, I place my bets on, on the public table, 
And when people want to call me okay. an idiot, they're, they're, no, I was gonna, they, okay. they have the, you know, the, 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 uh, the proof right in front of them that's right. in hard copy. I, I was going to bet you a silver dollar or a gold sovereign that we won't see, I don't know, $650 gold by, I don't know, 2011. Come on the show in two years' time again. and, and Well, we'll I'll see. promise to come on your show in a couple of years' time, and we will talk about it. But, okay. uh, but no bets here. All right, okay, fair enough. My, my bets are in the marketplace. Who... Uh, I mean, you obviously talk to a, as well as another person. You, you talk to a lot of people. Your fingers on the pulse. I imagine you talk to a lot of fund managers, a lot of technical traders, a lot of newsletter writers. Who's the best market timer, in your opinion? Well, uh, I can answer both those questions. The first one in the negative. I talk to almost no one. Okay. Uh, because the whole point of trying to do good market analysis is, is to get away from the crowd. Yeah. The crowd is heavily influencing. They'll bring up ideas that are completely irrelevant. Like, did you know the, the, the Fed is going to meet on Wednesday? Or, you, you know, they're about to, to plan mm. a giant bailout. If I listened to any of that, they all came, uh, you know, in the Wave 2 rallies in 2008, yeah. just before, before everything fell apart. Uh, it, it will hurt your, your independence and your disciplines. As far as the best market timer goes, uh, as far as I know from the records of the past 20, 30 years, it's Arch Crawford. It's, I mean, I've, I've followed Arch. I've interviewed him on the show. Yeah, and uh, he, he doesn't get the respect that he deserves, although the people that follow him know how good he is. Uh, he's been a friend of mine uh, since the 70s, uh, smart guy, and uh, he likes to say that they invented economists to make, ast- to make astrologers look good. And uh, I don't think he needs to say that. I think he, he looks good on his own. Um, I've read Archer's news, I was going to say, I've read Archer's newsletter, and a lot of the time he makes his calls based on technical stuff rather than astrological stuff. Um, I think, to be fair to him, you have to say it's a powerful combination of the two. And um, he, uh, he shouldn't use, the, and doesn't really anymore, use the word astrology because it sounds like, well, you know, what's your sign? Mm. Uh, it's really uh, planetary cycles. And the argument is that they influence uh, human behavior. How to make that connection, I'm not going to do it. That's his job. Uh, but his track record speaks for itself. So, Well, Robert Prechter, what can I say? It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You've had an arduous flight, which has been extended by a, a three-hour delay. So you must be absolutely shattered. Um, not at all. This, this cheered me up quite a bit. Okay, I'm in a much well, better mood than when I landed. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a, any frustration you were feeling, you, 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 you didn't show. So good for you. Um, tell us, are you writing a book at the moment? Or are you about to have something published? Well, I'm published? always writing some books. Um, but if I live long enough, if my flight makes it back in one okay. piece, uh, I hope in the next uh, five years to write a truly comprehensive book on the wave principle, the one that we did in 1978, uh, it, it just is a skimming of the surface. And the other thing I'd like to do is write about a six or 700-page volume on socionomics. I think we've, we're starting to do some, uh, some serious studies, and I think by that time we'll have enough to really come out with a textbook on it. Excellent. So those are my goals. We'll see. And uh, if any of our listeners want to find out more about your newsletter or your work, Elliott Wave International, is that the place yes, to Yes, ElliottWave.com. Um, we have a lot of free things. You don't even have to spend any money. Or if uh, you go on Amazon, you can get a bit of an introduction to what I do if you buy Conquer the Crash. And I even think there's some used first volumes out there if you want to save some money on Yeah, that. well, I, I, Conquer the Crash was one of the first books on investment I ever read. And, and I, I'm a read, I was reading it on holiday in Cornwall. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was very compelling. Well, no, <laughs> no it, was, it, was, it was a compelling read. I, I really enjoyed it. But anyway, Robert Prechter, ElliottWave.com is the website. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure.
Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 